Thank you so much for joining me on Teach Me How to Money. We are here with Erin Lowry. Thanks for having me. Hey, Erin. How's it going? It's going okay. (laughs) (laughs) Erin, tell us about yourself and what you do. Well, I am the founder of the site BrokeMillennial.com and the author of the book Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together, and a forthcoming second book that will be out in April of 2019. Already starting to plug, guys. I love it. Already starting. And I basically go around and teach millennials and anyone else how to get their financial lives together. So what's a millennial to you? Specifically in the age range, or would you like like an avatar of what a millennial looks like? I want both. Well, age range depends really on whose definition you're using. But I would say right now we're looking at between about 22 to 36 or 37. Okay. Which is a pretty big gap. Some people go down to about 18, 19 right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, which to me is way too deep. And the thing I love to describe in how different our generation is, is have you heard about the Oregon Trail divide? No. Did you play Oregon Trail in school? I know. I know that you have died of dysentery. Right. So you are on the older end of the millennial generation. Oh, no. I also understand the reference. Yes. But people who have never died of dysentery or exposure because they never played the game in school are on the younger end because it's this, like, one game that you can use to figure out where someone skews. Huh. Because on the younger end of the spectrum, they were having access to different games, social media earlier. I was a junior in high school and Facebook came out, but for some of these people, they were in middle school. So they grew up on social media in a very different way. And for some people, they were out of college. It's definitely different. We talk about it all the time how how can you talk about finance for somebody who's 21? It's very different for someone who's 31. Incredibly different. So tell us how you got to become broke millennial. What got you here? Tell us about your journey. Ooh, well, I should at this point, I've been doing this for five and a half years, and I really should have an elevator pitch, like this super distilled story. I don't. So... <laughs> I will tell you, for Broke Millennials, specifically the site, what happened is I had been out to drinks, 23 years old, and a friend of mine and I were sitting over a cup of coffee like 2.30 in the morning. We had met, for context, working as pages for The Late Show with David Letterman. So we had started in entertainment. She had moved to New York, classic story to be an actress, specifically in improv, which is like even more niche. (laughs) And I had already sold out and I had started working like a quote unquote real job with benefits. And we were 23 at the time, not married, no kids. She didn't have student loan debt. I didn't have student loan debt. So everything financially seemed like a pretty easy scenario. She hated her job. She was working as an assistant. And I said, I'm curious though, you're 23. You have no dependence, no debt. Why aren't you babysitting, waitressing, nannying, doing what you got to do to make the bills? But then you can have the flexibility to go out and pursue acting. She looks at me and she goes, well, I guess money just really freaks me out. I don't pay attention to it and just hope I have enough at the end of the month. Sure. And for me, this was a very naive but light bulb moment because I had been raised in a house where we talked about money ad nauseum. My parents were all about teaching us how to handle money. Money was never a stressful factor in my household. My parents always modeled healthy money behaviors. And what you grow up around is normal. So here I am living in New York City the first year in, making about $23,000, but feeling okay about it because I understood how to budget and how to be in control. And I all of a sudden, it was glass shattering, realized, oh, wow, a lot of people don't feel this way. And again, naive of me, but what you grow up around <laughs> is normal. And so then I started asking different friends, like, what's your relationship to money? How do you think about money? And most of the time, people just did not want to talk. Sure. And that's when I started the blog. It was because, one, I wanted a creative outlet, and it was 2013. And what else did you do? You started a blog. <laughs> <laughs> or a podcast. Or a podcast. Although back then, 2013 would have been a little, you would have been really on the cutting edge of podcasting. Of course. <laughs> and I, so I started that just 
partially as a way to share my own stories of how my parents had taught me about money. It was all very storytelling in nature. And it just kind of grew from there. Do you think that people relate to you because you don't make people feel bad about not knowing or even not caring about their money? Like they want to want to care. I hope so. I think it's some level of the authenticity factor and the storytelling factor. And, you know, I don't have one of those great, I super screwed up and fixed it. Here's how I did it. It's very much a, I had an advantage. I'm acknowledging I had an advantage, but let me tell you about it and how this can make a difference for you. And also that I see the shades of gray. Money is not black and white. Mm -hmm. I'm not a math person. You never had to be good at math in order to be good at money. So I hate that idea of, oh, I'm not good at math, so I can't handle money well. False. (laughs) So, and I think it's also that I I completely acknowledge that you're going to trip up. You're going to fail. I have failed multiple times trying to reach financial goals. It just reset and keep going. What's an example of a fail? Well, overspending is always a great example of a fail. I mean, I'm in the middle of planning a wedding, so you best laid plans on budget. Budgets, let me tell you. Oh, absolutely. Everything, if you put the word wedding in front of anything, it's twice the price. Yeah. Fun tip, sad and sexist, but true. If you are in a heterosexual relationship getting married, put the man on the phone to call anyone and say you're planning a family gathering. These are advice you need from an expert. These things would never occur to you unless somebody tells you. Or do it on email and say family gathering or family reunion. So here's my question. Why is budgeting so hard in our 20s? Well, it's hard because our lifestyles are really in flux in our 20s. I think that's the first thing. What worked for you at 21 might not work for you at 29 because your life has changed as hopefully your salary has changed a lot. Debts have probably changed. Hopefully down, but you never know. Things happen. And so I think one is sometimes we get so anchored to this one style that we're not flexible and realizing we need to change. And two, it doesn't feel fun. A lot of times it feels restrictive. So we like to kind of cast it off, not think about it, don't want to deal with it. And I would say if you're doing or if you have tried multiple budgeting styles and nothing has quite fit, you just haven't found your style yet. Okay. Everyone has something that will work for them, but you need to figure out by trial and error what that is. So what are some different ways that people can budget? You know, if you Google things, people say there's like the 50-30, Some people say just put it in an actual, they write it down with a pen and paper. Some people use spreadsheets. So what are some ways that people can just try to see if something works for them? The very first thing I always encourage people to do, or if you're trying to do kind of a money reset, it's the juice diet of the financial world, and that's the cash diet. And especially in this day and age of digital, a lot of people are like, oh, I can't do that. Everything I spend is online. You can tweak it to account for that, and I can explain how. But I love starting with a cash diet and then leveling up and coupling it with something I call the tracking every penny method. And that is every single time you make a purchase, you write down how much you spent, but more importantly, what you spent it on. And the reason I like to couple these together when you're just kind of trying to get control and reset is one, cash diet time and time again has been proven to reduce how much you spend because the physical action of handing cash over sets something off in your brain where it's like, oh, I don't want to part with this. You you feel the pain of loss. You do. And I have so many millennials tell me, no, no, I spend way more when I have cash. And I say, No, you see that you're spending with cash because it's in your wallet and dwindling down. So I would challenge you to try to do this and then couple it with the tracking every penny because the advantage there is after, I'd say about two weeks, try to do both of these together for two weeks. And at the end of that, you can look back and see what you have been buying. 
and then you can audit your purchases. What I mean by that is you can track if there are any patterns of mindless spending. I am not coming for your latte. I buy a latte almost every day. Here is where most personal finance experts are going to say, Nix the latte, stop eating out. Oh, that's so tired. Classic advice. Yeah. No, if that's what you value, power to you, it's fine. As long coffee. as you can afford it. We need our caffeine. I agree. Like I said, I get a latte almost every day. It's a small joy in my day, but I'm looking forward to doing it right after this podcast, actually. I already <laughs> know where I'm going. But I will also say the thing about being able to go back and track is you can see maybe there is a habit that's there that you don't realize you have. And you're like, no, I, I don't actually value that. That's not bringing anything to my day. It's just some sort of mindless routine I fell into by accident. And that's where you can start to cut something and repurpose that money to go somewhere else. Or maybe you're flawless and good for you, but I doubt it. Very few of us are. Well, I think that's so interesting too, because in some of these budget trackers, they'll, they'll group it in like transportation, food. And then you feel like, well, I don't want to spend less on food. But what if the food is like jelly beans? <laughs> what if the food is gummy bears? Like what if it's something that you, you really can cut out because you buy it in a time of emotion that's not really for your nutrition. I'm not speaking about myself I mean, in any way. Oh, emotional spending is a whole different rabbit hole we can go down. Definitely guilty of that one sure. as well. Well, let's talk for a second about emotional spending. How is that something that we can get a handle on? One, acknowledging and identifying what's triggering you is key. And that can be really hard to do. Sometimes it's at a point where you might need to speak to a professional. Financial therapy is a real thing that does exist. I've heard about this. Yep. And that could be a moment, especially if it's the kind of emotional spending that's leading you to perhaps compulsively shop and therefore create credit card debt. You know, if it's the occasional, like for me, if I get really upset and stressed about something and then there's this one bakery in my neighborhood that makes the most amazing brownie. And sometimes that is my, oh, I'm going to go buy a $3.50 brownie. Now, it's not good for my waistline or necessarily my budget to do that consistently. And, you know, sometimes I give in. However, if you're on the flip side where you are constantly being triggered to purchase or you're constantly justifying perhaps in a way that's not real. Like, it's imaginary, say not real. Well, but it's imaginary thinking. Yeah, no. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, magical thinking, not yeah. imaginary <laughs> Like, if I eat this while I'm walking, it doesn't mean anything. Right. Yeah. Or I just feel that you have to recognize what is causing you to want to spend. For me, it's if I'm stressed or angry, I can sense that I want to go buy something to make myself feel better. Interestingly, sadness doesn't normally trigger that for me, but for some people, that's what it is. For other people, it might be a sense of feeling out of control about some other factor in your life. You know, and if, like I said, it is leading you down this rabbit hole of constantly churning, compulsively spending credit card debt, yeah, you need to see someone, perhaps professionally, to get some help about that. Would you recommend in the tra in the track every penny plan putting down how you felt when you spent that money? Ooh, I like that idea. Like a little bit of a mood journal. Perhaps if yeah, if you know that compulsive spending is part of your issue, that is a really great idea. You can put a happy face, in. a medium face, or a yeah. sad face. And I would say be very specific about what you're buying. Don't just say lunch. Say what you had for oh, lunch. Oh yeah, there's a big difference you between lunch. you know a healthy lunch and you know, two kids meals. And is and also just so you know where that money is exactly going. Part of the reason I always advocate for this, one of my former roommates really wanted to go to yoga teacher training. She was trying to figure out where to save some money in her budget. And I told her to try tracking every penny. At the end of one week, she came home and said, you'll not believe what I'm doing. Every day I leave my office around three o'clock, go to Starbucks, 
but I just buy a bottle of water. Sure. It's not even that I'm enjoying a latte. I am going and buying bottled water. I don't need that. I can fill it up in my office and just go for a walk in the park. It produces the same results. So for her, that was a really simple, easy way to identify something that she was didn't find value in doing. I guess these joyless purchases yep, are something exactly. that we can try to cut out. If it's not, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice if you're realizing how it never gave you that much pleasure to, to begin with. It's true. And I will say, I, I guess I didn't totally define a cash diet, but it is spending exclusively in cash. Obviously, there are things that we don't spend cash on. For instance, you might pay your rent digitally. You know, I do a direct deposit to my landlord or your utilities and all that. So that's fine. I would say it's the money. Let's say that after you've paid all your bills, you've put money into savings the money that you're going to spend for the rest of the month, so probably transportation, food, extracurriculars, let's say that that's $800 divided by four, you have $200 a week that you can spend. Go to the ATM, take that out, make your purchases. Now, I have a dog. I buy all of his dog food online because it's cheaper. So let's say that cost me 20 bucks, and on Tuesday I spend $20 on Amazon buying his food for the month. I would take $20 out of my wallet and put it into an envelope for next week. So then when I go to the ATM, I just take out 180 because I've had 20 rollover. That's how I personally account for online purchases if I'm trying to do the cash diet. So how do you set money aside for the things you want to do that are joyful. like So I know you like travel. I love travel. So I have one super silly spending or saving strategy, rather not spending. But if you're doing the cash diet, couple it with this. Every single time you buy something, if you get a $5 bill back, put it in a jar in your room. And then you just keep saving $5 bills. It sounds ridiculous, but I saved in nine months about 800 bucks by doing this. Sounds great. And it's money I never would have saved. Otherwise, I would have just stayed in my wallet and I would have spent it. Well, people save change. Yep, that's another good one. But, but the $5 bill, like there's a level of, it adds up a little faster than pennies and quarters sure. for one. And it's really easy to do. So that's just a silly one. But for me, it's the, you know, cliche, pay yourself first rhetoric. I'm self-employed. Every single time I get a paycheck, I put 45% of it into an account for Uncle Sam. It's I call it my Uncle Sam account. Sure. So it's for taxes. And then also that is my forced saving for retirement. Because okay. any money that remains after I pay my taxes gets put into my SEP IRA for retirement. So that's one in terms of future planning. That's the super future retirement planning. And then for, you know, things like travel especially, I try to keep cost of living down in order to put more money away for saving because it's, you know, it's a value thing. I don't spend a lot of money on, say, clothing because I don't value that quite as much as travel. You know, I live in New York, but I live in Queens. I don't pay the premium to live in Manhattan so that I can save money so I can go travel. So, you know, that's not to judge anyone who's paying more to live in a luxury high rise in Manhattan. That might be what you value and that's fine. Do you find, do you have any tricks like automating toward your savings? Do you find that's a good trick to make it feel less painful? Automating definitely works if you're traditionally employed. It's a bit tougher when you're a freelancer and you're dealing with variable income, you still technically could do it depending on how you structure paying yourself. Personally, I have a business checking account and I draw a salary out of that business checking account and put it in my personal. And I could then automate out of personal into a savings. But really part of my quote unquote paying myself from my business account, I, I have written out every month how much I'm putting into savings. So instead of necessarily automating it, I just do it. 
by myself. How do you handle credit cards? I have a lot of them. So I'm a, a bit different from other personal finance experts in the sense that I love them because there's so much value that you can get, including building a credit score for free. Because if you're not carrying a balance, you're not paying interest. And if it's an annual fee, a card without an annual fee, I should say, yeah, you're building a credit score without having to actually carry debt. I also love reward churning. Sure. But I only recommend that for people at a really black belt level personal finance situation. You know, if you're struggling to pay off other forms of debt, especially consumer debt, no, you should not remotely be focusing on bonuses that you're getting from credit cards. In fact, you probably shouldn't be applying for credit cards right now in order to get a handle on the debt situation. And I'm a big advocate of always saying pay off your balance on time and in full. There's never, ever a need to carry a balance on your credit card from month to month. That is one of the worst myths that are out there because people hear that all the time. In order to build your credit score, you have to carry a balance. It's very convoluted to go into why that exists. But let me just say, I've spoken to a lot of experts at a lot of credit bureaus and credit scoring model companies. You absolutely do not have to carry a balance. Just pay off your bill in full. The best thing to do is to keep your utilization below 30%, which means if you have a $1,000 line of credit on your credit card, don't spend more than $300 in the month. Then when that $300 bill comes in, pay it off in full immediately. But it, I get so excited when they say, uh, I qualify for a gold or a platinum card. It makes me feel so special. Should I not feel special? You can certainly feel special, but then you need to decide why they're doing that and what they're trying to tempt you into. And a lot of people have questions about, oh, they increased my line of credit without me asking them to. What should I do? Well, if it's not going to tempt you to spend more, you're fine. You can let them do that. If you keep your spending at the exact same pattern, behaviors, you'll actually find it beneficial because you automatically lower your utilization ratio. You're not spending any more money and your limit is higher, so it automatically reduces how much relative to what you have that you're spending. So this is my last question. So some people, they have trouble saving for retirement in their 20s because they feel like it's so far away, which I can relate to that. But then there are some people who are on the opposite end of the spectrum, people who are part of something called a FIRE movement, who, and that is financial independence, retire early. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you think of that and what the pros and cons are for people who want to really fast track their retirement. So being an extreme on either end can be detrimental short-term, long-term, depending on how you look at it. For anyone who feels as if I can't say or I don't feel motivated to save, I have a really quirky recommendation for you. And that is, you can do one of two versions of this. You can first go and find a, an aging app. So I think there's one called Photo Booth or Aging Photo Booth. You put in a picture of yourself today and it will age you 50 years. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous. But there was a study out of UCLA that found that if people see an aged photo of themselves, they're more likely to connect with the future version of themselves and it will motivate you to save and prepare your, for yourself, your oh future my goodness. self. It's a little mind trick. I had a reader one time, though, email me and she goes, I got to tell you, that photo of myself is horrifying <laughs> and I don't like it. I don't want to see it. So instead, I've printed out a picture of me at my happiest and think I want to be able to financially afford to be that happy when I get to retirement. So you do you, whichever one works for you. But and the other thing I would say is I know it can be demoralizing if you can only afford to put away like $5 a month. It sounds, what's the point? The point is building the habit. Just like with saving normally, saving for retirement, especially if you have the opportunity to get an employer match. 
try to take advantage of that match. But even if 3%, 5%, whatever it is, is too much, start with half a percent. Every three months, creep it up by another half a percent until you're at your ideal percentage. Because then you're not going to feel the same amount of pain. I promise you half a percent, you'll barely notice a difference in your paycheck. So I shouldn't eat nothing but ramen, move back in with my parents, and just stop dating in order to save every penny so I can retire at 35? You know, if you want to doggedly pursue fire... I'm not going to tell you that that's a terrible idea, but I will say be sure to find some level of balance because to completely forego every element of joy, if it requires some money in your life, it could lead to a very sad existence leading to, you know, 35. And also consider a lot of factors are going to change for you in your life. Be sure to work that into your calculation of what your FI number is because It might just be you right now, but what happens if you get married? What happens if you have kids? What happens if one of your kids is sick? What happens if you get sick? What happens if you're married now and that's your FI number and then you get divorced? There are so many factors at play here. So arguably your FI number might be a lot bigger than you think. And I believe it's good for humans to work. So have a plan for some level of utility. You might not need to be earning an income, but you need to be doing something for your own self-satisfaction when you get there. And I will also say on this, I went through a period where I was very focused on saving my early time in New York and not wanting to spend a lot. And I said no to people all the time. And if you keep saying no, they eventually stop asking. So just something to consider in terms of a social life. That is true. Well, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Teach Me How to Money. Send us your questions at teachmehowtomoney at stashinvest.com and we'll try to answer them on a future episode. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review on the iTunes store, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't have Stash yet? Just go to stashinvest.com slash podcast and you can get $5 to get you started on your investment journey. Stash, it's your money. Simplified. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from Stash to the listener. Neither Stash nor any of its officers, directors, or employees makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Stash, and Stash is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of advice by Stash to the listener, nor to constitute such a person a client of Stash.